We're going to read now from Jesus' words in Matthew 18, and it will come up on the screen for you as well. We're starting at sentence 15, and Jesus is teaching his people how to handle conflict and sin and to be a forgiving people. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my heavenly Father. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not, even, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, a kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. And I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I'll pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay back the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. And they went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. This is the word of God. Hey everyone, um, we're going to be just jumping into that passage that Jez just read for us, um, which I'm really excited to do, and um, before that I'm just going to pray that God will be with us in this time. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come to you as people who are in desperate need of, uh, of input from you. On our own, we, we, um, we struggle. We struggle with the weight of our, our sin and our brokenness and, our, um, and, the, and the conflict and the, and the troubles we find ourselves in. So we just ask that by your word you'd be just working in us by your spirit that we might understand how you have both um, solved our greatest need in sending your son to die in our place, but also how that can then actually impact and, and influence the lives that we live day by day. So we just ask you'd be with us in this time. Amen. Now, um, recently, as I've scoured the world of podcasts to, to find things that pique my interest, I've found that I'm quite interested in neuroscience podcasts, um, which I didn't really expect. And I've, what I think I've liked about listening to kind of how our brains work is that so many of our behaviours and things that we just kind of take for granted or find even annoying in ourselves often have some kind of deep 
explanatory thing of what happens in our brains and in our biology. And one of the most kind of deep-rooted just things that I seem to affect us semi-regularly is what is known as the fight-or-flight response, which I'm sure many people have heard about before. Um, it's how that when we encounter a threat, our, our, our brain almost instantaneously finds a way to pump us full of adrenaline and to make us hyper-aware so that we're ready to take action, whether that's to kind of fight and defend ourselves or to, to run away and get to safety. And I think the time that, at least for me, I, I kind of noticed this most often is when I'm driving on the road, um, which if you think about it, is one of the most unnatural events that we subject ourselves to on a regular basis. We've spent, as humans, the best part of the last few thousand years never really getting above walking pace, but sometimes running pace, and, and even then it's mostly on kind of soft ground. But now, on an almost daily basis, we surround ourselves with a chunk of metal and move around on concrete surfaces at 60 to 70 kilometres an hour, while surrounded by other metal-heavy objects also going 70 k's an hour, but in slightly different directions. And so it's no surprise that in that environment, when, all, when someone just gets a little bit too close or makes us have to slam the brakes on, our brains, which are already on these like in heightened alert, go into battle mode. Or we have the same kind of response that we would kind of normally find ourselves with if we encountered a hungry lion. And so that comes out often for people in anger. It's this like getting ready to fight mode. It's in the rage, it's in the horn, it's in the yelling. It's in that contemplating, would it be a good trade-off for me to crash my car into this person's car, even though I would write mine off, just to teach them a lesson? I don't know if you've had that thought. And for me, it's a pretty powerful response that comes naturally that I need to overcome. And I know that I'm not alone in this. Um, even my wife, who if you know her, she's a very warm and lovely human being, has on at least one occasion rolled down the window and yelled at someone out the window. <laughs> and for every one time she's done it, I've done it ten times. <laughs> and so while obviously this, this fight or flight response is obviously, you know, this explanation for how we respond in the moment to physical threats, it's interesting to think about, I guess, the broad ways that we tend to respond when we are wronged. And I think broadly, this falls into these kind of similar two categories of fight or flight, and not just when we're confronted with physical threats, but when we're hurt through words or mistreatment or selfishness. Either we want to fight or retaliate, we want to get revenge, we want to get even, we want some damage inflicted on the person who has hurt us in, in equal or greater measure to what we've been hurt, we want them to pay, or we avoid it. We either literally just avoid the person who's wronged us, we cut them out of our lives, we hope not to see them, we, if we see them at the shops, we walk to the other side or keep our eyes down and just avoid them. Or if we don't avoid the wrongdoer, we often just avoid the wrong. We downplay the hurt, we downplay the sin, we excuse it or we ignore it and just kind of hope it goes away. And I'm sure you can think of times in your life where you've reached for one of these responses, maybe more likely one than the other depending on your personality or your temperament. But both of these responses have issues, don't they? Getting even never feels as satisfying as we hope it will, and often it just leads to escalating conflict and, 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 and hurt. And avoiding people when they sin against us, or avoiding the sin itself, leaves us dealing with it, and often even subjecting ourselves to further hurts and further wrongs. And so I think it's, it's a really helpful and practical teaching that Jesus lays out for us today that we're going to be looking at, which is a third way to respond when we are hurt or wronged, or in Jesus' language, when we are sinned against. And that's the way of forgiveness. I think this is one of the most transformative pieces of Jesus' teaching. If you're here exploring Christianity, if you're here trying to work out what it's all about, I think this gives you a real window to what 
the heart of the Christian message is. That there is uh, this nuanced way to respond to sin that neither just ignores the wrong or needs us to retaliate. It's forgiveness. To get you guys up to speed where we are in the book of Matthew, because we did have a long break over the summer from this book, Jesus has been building around himself a community, or in his language, a kingdom. But it's not a kingdom of palaces and castles and armies, um, but it's a kingdom of people from all walks of life and ethnic backgrounds, socioeconomic status, all committed to following the way of Jesus and the way of love and peace and righteousness in a subversive way under another kingdom. And in this section where we're at in Matthew chapter 18, he's specifically been speaking about how this community that he thinks of as a family of of brothers and sisters, how they interact with one another. And as much as Jesus' community is called to be countercultural, there is a realism in the way that Jesus speaks that even among his followers, there is still going to be failing, unpleasantness and sin and hurt. And so this section really that Jez just started reading opens with Jesus responding, I guess, to a question that people might be feeling about this community, which is, what do you do when someone in this community sins, presumably in some way that that is noticeable or even impacts you or those around you? And Jesus' response to this, I think, is in two parts that on face value might even seem contradictory, but I think actually complement each other well and how it is that we respond to sin in our midst. And firstly, what Jesus lays out is that sin needs to be confronted. He instructs his followers to confront sin, and he lays out some wisdom in the form of this four-part escalatory process of what, it's kind of like a step-by-step guide of what you do when you are sinned against. And so we'll walk through that from verse 15. Jesus says, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you, If they listen to you, you've won them over. So initially Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, so that's obviously, he's talking about, this is in a church context, that's people who have kind of volunteered by being part of that to be held to the account, account to the standards of Jesus. When they sin, and again, it's when they sin, not when they just have a different view to you or they've got a mannerism that's annoying or whatever else. But when they sin, it says, go to them and explain it to them. And ideally what will happen is they'll say, yeah, you're right, I was wrong, I missed that or it was a mistake or I was just in the moment. I'm sorry, forgive me. And then they'll set about changing their lives. You'll forgive them. And then it says you've won. That's a happy ending. You haven't gone and you haven't spread a bunch of gossip. You haven't made things worse. They've owned it. They've repented. You've reconciled. And happy days. But obviously that doesn't always happen in real life on that first attempt. So Jesus then says, well, what do you do next? So that doesn't work. Verse 16, if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of one or, of two or three witnesses. So sometimes people don't listen when you go. They might uh, avoid it, downplay it, make an excuse, say that you're crazy, whatever it is. And so Jesus um, refers to this Old Testament practice where in a court of law you'd have to have two or three people willing to verify this claim so that people couldn't be wrongly um, prosecuted. So Jesus is saying, look, if, if you go to someone and they just deny it or, or, or blow you off or whatever... Get a couple of other people who can, who can see what you can see and who can support you in that and go with them. And hopefully that in and of itself will give them the clarity they need, that, that conf- confrontation that they need to say, yep, okay, this really is a thing. I do need to change. I do need to be forgiven. And again, hopefully that, that, that works. But then if that still doesn't get through, Jesus says the next step is if they refuse to listen, tell it to the church. 
because maybe there might be some instances where people are so blind to their sin or so, so set in their ways that the only thing that will break through is having light shone on it by having an, an entire community of people, whether that's um, like a, a community group or in Jesus' time maybe like a house church, whatever it might be, but to have a wide group of people to look at this problem and say, look, we're all kind of on the same page here. What you're doing is not okay. That's not all right. We, we, we can't stand by that. And again, hope, the hope even in that moment is that that will, will, will break through to the heart of the sinful person and bring restoration. But then even then, Jesus says, if they still refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Which doesn't mean to treat them with ridicule or scorn or, or abuse, because if you've got to keep in mind, Matthew, who's writing this, was a tax collector. He is someone who was treated by Jesus in a really loving way. But what it means is that if you've got a person who's so stuck in their way of sin and defending it and set on that and unwilling to change, be repentant, get forgiveness, then it's best to conclude that they're not really set on following Jesus. That they might be doing that by name, but they're not doing it in reality. And so they're not part of the family. So the, what would be best would be to go back to basics and pray for them that they would actually understand Jesus. That the Spirit would work in their life because you can't change them at that point. That is, they are set in their ways. The Holy Spirit needs to intervene. Now, it's a really practical bit of teaching as you go through that. Like, you can see how, you know, even though it was 2,000 years ago, that bit of wisdom as a, as a general flow is really just useful now. Um, you probably have even found it in times in your life in conflict that you've kind of maybe followed some pattern similar to that. But this, even in this really practical piece of teaching, I think it highlights a couple of things that are really significant and really important for us to get as a church community. And the first is that sin is serious. Sin is not something that can just be ignored. It's not something that you can just turn a blind eye to. It's not something that you can sweep under the rug. And I think this is important for us to hear because I think by and large, like Australian culture is a, a conflict avoidant culture because it's not fun to confront someone. It's not fun to tell someone something that is wrong with them or that, whether, how they've hurt you or hurt others. It's not fun, it's not pleasant. But because sin matters, Jesus causes people to deal with it. Sin, when it's left alone, doesn't tend just to resolve itself. It tends to get worse. Like an old lunch left in the bottom of a school bag, it just festers and rots and spoils. And sin, left unattended in the church, has a way of spoiling. It impacts relationships. It damages community. It ruins trust and it impacts the church's ability to connect with and love the surrounding world. Now, I think this teaching of Jesus is so, so critical to understand, particularly if you personally feel the frustration of seeing or hearing about churches or maybe even experienced churches that when they've encountered sin or abuse of various kinds, they've downplayed it or even worse, they've covered it up. Because when that happens, as you can see from the, the mouth of Jesus, that is directly the opposite of what Jesus says should happen in his church. That, who says that sin should be addressed head on. And that unrepentant or serious sin should be brought before the church. Not, not hidden away for no one to see. And those who have been sinned against should be supported by a, a small group of, of supporting people and, and ultimately by the wider church in confronting and even expelling, say, abusers. And so when churches have failed to do this, it's, it's in direct contradiction to Jesus' teaching. 
it, it, it breaks Jesus' heart to see this because he has got this, he's set out what he expects his church to do. To have the responsibility to care for and protect and make a safe place for people. To, to when sin occurs, have it confronted and rooted out. But the second thing that you might have noticed as you read through those, that, those instructions, I guess, is that the goal at every step of the way is reconciliation and restoration. That throughout this process that Jesus lays out, his hope for his church again and again and again is that people would have relationship restored. That people, when they are sinful, would actually be confronted of that but ultimately receive grace and forgiveness. And then this leads Peter to ask a question which takes us into, I guess, the second major piece of Jesus' teaching here. Jesus says, well, look, if you're going through these steps and the goal is reconciliation... How many times should I forgive someone? It says in verse 21, Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. And so you see here again, Peter who's just again and again and again, just eager and a little bit naive. He's trying to get the right answer. He's like, seven, big number, like a whole seven times. But then Jesus answers, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Or other translations have 70 times, seven times. And with that extravagant answer, Jesus launches into a story. And the story begins like this. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. Now, in this big introduction to this story, I think we get a really clear picture of how God perceives our condition. Here's the story of a servant who owes 10,000 bags of gold. Technically, it's 10,000 talents, which was a unit of currency, but it's a ridiculous amount. It was an amount that no one had ever possessed. No one could ever have. It's kind of like saying a man owed a bajillion dollars. It's like, that means a lot, but it's not real. It's like, it's a ridiculous situation that no servant could have ended up owing 10,000 bags of gold to a king with no solution. And it's trying to paint this picture of a situation that is dire, it is not something you can just kind of solve yourself. I don't know if you've ever had the, the experience of just being in debt or having just that being weighed down by being in a situation that you've got no way out of. I, I remember feeling this feeling tangibly when I was a bit younger. I was 18 and I was staying at some people's um, house at another church where we were helping out with some church event. And I'd borrowed my mum's car for the weekend and was driving it around. Um, and I parked the car one night, went inside, went to bed, got up in the morning and walked outside and was surprised to find my car lodged right in the middle of this really nice manicured garden. And I thought, whoa, what's happened? Has someone stolen my car? They'd like taken it for a joyride and just slammed it into the garden. But then as I kind of took in the scene, I remember that the day before I'd parked my car up on top of a hill and I could see throughout this kind of steep garden where there were big terracotta pots now smashed, trees that have been knocked over, um, sprinkler systems that have been ripped out of the ground and just a bunch of dead flowers, and that the car had rolled down the hill and I opened the door and lo and behold, the handbrake was off. And I just took in this scene of realising that 
I don't know how much rich people's gardens cost, but it's probably a lot more than I had. I think I had about $50 to my name at the time. And so I had to go inside, this is kind of early in the morning, um, wait for the, the owners to wake up and just say to them, hey, I'm, I'm really sorry, but it's, it's all gone. It's, it's, it's ruined. And I couldn't even soften it. I think I did probably say, look, I'll pay for it. But I think I knew deep down, I had, I had no way of doing that. It was like, this is, my year is ruined. This is going to be working every weekend for the rest of the year just to kind of undo this mess. And I, I felt really bad. I can just remember that feeling. But because they were this lovely Christian couple, and I think probably also quite wealthy, they said, look, don't worry about it. Seriously, don't worry about it. And I still was like, no, no, I have to do something. But they're like, no, seriously, don't worry about it. And then as they kind of said that and it connected with me that I wasn't actually going to have to pay for this, that weight was lifted. I think that's, that, that feeling of being out of, your, out of your depth with nowhere to pay is what this is conjuring up. Imagine coming to a king who has the power to imprison or even kill you and your family, owing more than you could ever repay because of your bad decision, and just the feeling you'd have there. And what Jesus is trying to communicate is that on a moral level, this is how each of us comes before God. We are morally bankrupt. We've sinned against a perfect God, a God who is worthy of love and praise. We've instead rejected and ignored and betrayed. Through just thousands of minor acts of selfishness and, and maybe a few major acts of outright evil. And we've got no hope of paying. And yet, like in this story, we receive mercy. The king bears the cost. In the story, the king doesn't bear no cost. He just lost 10,000 bags of gold. But the servant is free. But in reality, the cost is that Jesus himself comes and dies in our place. He dies for our sin, takes the anger of God on himself so that we would face no punishment. We would be forgiven. That's the forgiveness that we receive. And so it's against that backdrop that the story goes on. In verse 28, it says, But when the servant went out, after this had just happened, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I'll pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. We see something outrageous here. A man is forgiven 10,000 bags of gold, and yet he still demands 100 silver coins he's owed. And it's fair to note, he is owed the money. The other servant does, in fact, owe him 100 silver coins. He has a right to it, and he can legally throw his fellow servant in jail. And so what's outrageous here isn't that this guy is doing something illegal or that he's not allowed to do. But what is happening here is that it's just so, so unfitting to punish another person when you've just been forgiven more than you could ever imagine. It just doesn't make sense. I read a story some years ago about a, a man in the US, um, Albert Tessie, who, um, who was in court and, and, and jailed for refusing to pay $30,000 in child support. And the reason this was in the news, because that must happen all the time, people who don't pay their child support, was that this guy, Albert, had just won $7 million in the lottery. He won $7 million, probably on a $1 or $2 lottery ticket, and he refused to pay $30,000 to support his child. And so that made the news, of course, because that is outrageous. Like, what does that show about the state of his heart if he's that greedy and that unwilling 
depart with his abundance of money that he did nothing to get. So that's the point of Jesus' story. If you've been forgiven as much as you've been forgiven, that should translate into a willingness to forgive others. So Jesus drives the point home. In verse 32, he concludes, The master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. That's a pretty heavy ending. It's a super heavy ending. But it underscores Jesus' point here. This story was in response to a question, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister? And Jesus' answer in short is, well, how much have you been forgiven? And if your answer to that question is a lot, then the logic follows that you should forgive too. And that more than this, when we refuse to forgive, we're condemning ourselves. And the servant in Jesus' parable insists on his fellow servant repaying He's condemning himself because he's showing that he hasn't understood that there is another paradigm on offer of what you do when you're owed a debt. He hasn't connected with, he hasn't understood, he hasn't identified with the forgiveness he's been shown at all. Like Even the story, as you read it through, there's, there's nothing, it just says that they must let him go. There is no, there's no hint or sign of understanding what that really means. It's a paradigm-shifting understanding to know that we've been forgiven. N.T. Wright, the theologian, says this about this passage. He says, every time you accuse someone, you accuse yourself. Every time you forgive someone, though, you pass on a drop of water out of the bucket full that God has already given you. From God's point of view, the distance between being ordinarily sinful, what we all are, and extremely sinful, what the people we don't like seem to be, is the distance between London and Paris seen from the point of view of the sun. We're not often aware of the lavish forgiveness that we've received. We are often hyper-aware of the debts that are owed us. We feel those acutely, the ways people have, have wronged us. But when we do understand just the extent of which we've been forgiven, it, it loosens up in our understanding the possible responses for when we ourselves are wronged. Because we've been shown forgiveness, we're called to forgive. And what a powerful thing it would be to be a community that is marked by this radical forgiveness. When we are wronged, to take the road of forgiving. Not insisting on getting what we are owed, but in some small part imitating our saviour in forgiveness. Now to speak the obvious, this is easier said than done, right? This doesn't come naturally. If, if this came naturally, Jesus would be out of a job. He wouldn't have anything to speak on. But the reason he's telling this story is this does not come naturally to any of us. The retaliation comes naturally. The avoidance comes naturally. And as you think about this for yourself, I'm almost 100% sure you're, you're not thinking about the little slights against you in this past week. You're not thinking about the little ways people have wronged you even this morning. But what you're thinking about is the times when you've had your deepest hurts, when, you've had your, when people have betrayed the trust that you've put in them, when people have let you down profoundly, when people have left you with deep wounds that you may be still working through and, and feeling to this day. And you might be thinking in those moments, or right now, I just don't think I could ever forgive them. 
Even if you want to or you think it's a nice idea, you just don't think you could do it. So before I just draw something out of Jesus' teaching around this, I just want to make it really clear just two things that forgiveness doesn't mean. And the first one I just want to make abundantly clear is that forgiveness doesn't mean furthering abuse or wrongdoing. I think it's so helpful to have these two passages together, Jesus' words on confronting sin and then the call to forgiveness. Because without Jesus' words on confronting sin, you could think, well, this just means being a doormat, just to lie down. People can trample over you as many times as they want, and that's what Jesus asks us to do. But if you look what Jesus says about confronting sin, if you've got a person who is sinning against you and refusing to, to stop or to, 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 to change, Jesus doesn't say go back again and again and again and again and again and just keep trying on your own. What does he say? He says... Bring some others in. Find some safe people who will go with you and support you and protect you in that. It's a pattern for establishing safe boundaries. It says ultimately there might be a point where you just got to cut yourself off from those people altogether. And so I just want to say if you're in a situation of abuse, whether that's emotional abuse or physical abuse or sexual abuse or spiritual abuse, Jesus' first call to you today from the passage isn't to forgive, which it will be, But his first thing he says is to get safe, to find one or two safe people who will come with you in dealing with this, to help you confront the abuse and and ultimately, if you need to get separate from it. He'll ask you to forgive as well, but forgiveness is hard and it takes time and it takes space. And so you need to have space to do that. And so if you are going through some abuse at the moment and maybe you don't know who, maybe you've got people that you just, who are safe people that you can go and talk to, but if you don't, I want to say that Anna Moran, who works here on staff, or Jez or myself, um, might be a place to start. Because as a church, we want to support you if you have been sinned against. We want to help you. And then secondly, second thing that forgiveness doesn't mean, forgiveness is not the same as restoration and reconciliation. The hope again and again and again is when we are wronged that we'll be able to go through some process to heal that relationship, to, to have things restored, to be, to be brothers and sisters as we are meant to be. But that takes two people. And we don't have control over anyone else's response or behavior. And so there are times when that won't happen. And it, and it hurts when, when someone who has wronged you just can't identify that or, or own that or, or make amends. But forgiveness doesn't require that. Forgiveness is to, re- is to release the debt with the hope that reconciliation might happen but with the knowledge that it might not. So what forgiveness is, is a decision as much as we can, to choose to have mercy. To try to bring ourselves to a place where we have pity on the brokenness of the person who has wronged us. To remind ourselves, just in our minds and intellectually, that, that because we've been forgiven, even if it goes against everything that feels natural in, in wanting to strike back or see that person suffer, that what we should be doing is imitating Jesus in that. To to try to align our hearts with his and, and reflect his heart for us in how we treat others. To know that we've had our sins forgiven. That when we are hurt, we can say, look, you are bad, but I'm bad too. And you've hurt me, but I have hurt God. And look, maybe you've hurt me more than I feel like I hurt other people, and maybe you're more selfish than I feel like I am. But at the end of the day, I've been shown a great mercy by an infinitely loving God who have wronged again and again and again, who has a list of offences against me longer than any list of offences I have against anyone else, and he has chosen to forgive me, and so I will try to forgive as well. 
And this is a powerful thing when it happens. And I say it's powerful because it overrides what is natural in us. This is a supernatural reality that's going on here. This is a change. This is something that you just don't find. And, and throughout church history and around the world, just countless times, people have had a supernatural degree of forgiveness for others because of what they've understood of God's grace for them. A few years back at the church I was at before this, we had a, a pastor called Frank Retief come and speak to us, um, speak to a few of the guys there. And it was a privilege to meet with this guy um, who had been a pastor for some time, but he told us a story uh, about his church in South Africa. That on the 25th of July in 1993, he and his congregation were gathered on a Sunday morning at, at a church called St. James Church in Cape Town, which was a mixed-race church, but in a predominantly white neighbourhood in the, in the final days of apartheid. And during the service, men walked through the back doors, each raised a machine gun and fired upon the congregation. They threw some grenades and then they fled. And in all, 58 people were injured and 11 people were killed. And the, the scene as he described it was just beyond belief. It was, it was horrible. But Frank told us about how his church, even from like an hour after when the TV cameras arrived, went about displaying forgiveness. In all the, the TV and, and newspapers of the time, they showed these people talking about the way that they forgive the killers because Jesus had forgiven them. And even when these uh, attackers were arrested and put in jail, members of the church who had lost family members and friends went to the prison and gave them Bibles. Now, to forgive in this way is not natural. That doesn't just happen. That's not, that's how, not how we normally respond to these kind of things. But what was happening in that, in that church is that God was at work by spirit to connect the dots between what God has done for them and what they are called to do for others. And so I think at the end of the day, and particularly if you're someone who's just wrestling with that question of forgiveness, the answer is to just throw yourself at the foot of the cross and to ask that God would help you, to plead with him that you would understand how much he loves you, how much he has given you, and that he would help you on that journey. Maybe that's starting a conversation with God, maybe it's starting a conversation with others here. But in just a moment, we're going to have a time of communion, which is a, a tangible just space where we can just be quiet before God. We can eat some bread, drink juice. Jez will explain it in a bit more detail. But we can just connect what the cost was for us, what Jesus poured out for us. And so maybe if there are people in our minds that we're just struggling to forgive at the moment, to know that God understands what we feel, that he understands the pain and the hurt that we've experienced, he understands the level of debt that we are owed, and to, to, to talk to God about that and ask him to be at work in your life by the Spirit. So I'm just going to pray now, and then I'm going to hand over to Jez, who will explain how this is going to work. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for this teaching that shows us that you have this nuanced perspective on sin, that you hate sin, that you think uh, you're not content with sin being left or, or uh, allowed to, to endure and allowed to damage and to hurt in your people. But we know that we've already been hurt, many of us, we know that there are people who, uh, who have wronged us who have not acknowledged that perhaps. And so we just ask that you would be with us in this time. That you ask, we ask that you would help us know your peace and your love and your closeness and your forgiveness. That you'd be changing us, Lord. And we just pray that we would be a church that is committed to protecting one another, who is committed to identifying sin and working together to confront it with restoration in mind and with the hope of forgiveness but there would be a bold and courageous church as well. We just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.